Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. I had done my own research, and I was able to compile about 12 three-ring notebooks of information. And some of that was through uh, the Internet, some was through researching books, some was uh, just attending conferences, whatever I could do. But the bottom line is the more information you have, the more you can weed out stuff that's not true. Yes. And so that's where I started with my own information. And then in 2005, we started inviting people to become friends with Red Scott. And when I say, excuse me, inviting people, I'm referring to mostly organizations that had representatives. For instance, I started with the National Parks Association because the National Park Service is uh, the people of the old courthouse here in St. Louis where they filed their first petition. 
And so they have always been supportive of Gridcott because, you know, that's like the same the same. In fact, the old courthouse in St. Louis, a lot of people don't know this, it was preserved because the Gridcott case started there. It was literally supposed to be torn down and by all rights legally should have been torn down. I say that because, and I don't mean to digress to your question, but there's so many great things to share. But uh, there's also a family who donated the land that as long as it's a courthouse, you can have it. Well, they finally closed it. And once it was closed and no longer being used, they said, well, we'll, we'll take that back. But some people said, well, you know what, this is a historic building and we need to preserve it. And it went to court. And as it turns out, the judge just ruled in favor of keeping it. But by all rights, I think probably if you were just going to go to the letter of the law, they probably could have gotten their land back and torn down that building. However, Providence served it and saved it. And so we do have that place today. And it's a wonderful place because something great is going to happen there in just a few weeks. So that being said, um, just going through and inviting people like that, Washington University, at the time I worked for Brian Cave Law Firm, and they were part of the Friends of Dred Scott, Finglish University, Harris State, So State University now. A lot of educational institutions, but along with those, we had groups like, excuse me, one moment. Thank you. We had groups like um, the Black Black World History Museum here in St. Louis, which is founded and kept by Lois Conley. And she does her own wax museum pieces. So she has Fred and Harriet Scott in her museum. And so we just collected about 40 to 50 groups. We had the Bar Association, uh, just a, a myriad of groups. And everyone who had a historical or academic background contributed to it. The Secretary of State's office was part of the Friends. And so those keepers of the documents, those keepers of the Freedom suits, which we discovered that there were some 300 that were filed here in Missoula, not just Fred and Harriet, but 300. Most of them didn't make it out of, you know, the lower courts, but there was more. So we had all of this information, and as we continued to compile it, uh, the stories began to grow. And then, of course, many things were unveiled after we got in motion. The year 2006 was planning, and 2007 on March 6th was that 150th anniversary. And uh, and it's been what we call the never-ending story ever since. So it's really been a personal quest for that information. And I truly I thank the Lord because he has opened so many doors and so many people and institutions have come forward to help us in our goals and our quest that this is making that story come to life. And soon I hope I can share with you how we have a wonderful book on the family of this that was really unveiled a lot of information we did not know beforehand as well. Leslie Gift of the Just of Freedom <laughs> Black Talk Radio Blog Talk Radio. We want to make sure we give credit where credit is due. Uh Lynn, first of all, I'm actually fascinated by what you're saying. I got about sixteen pages of notes based on what you've been saying so far, just jotting down this valuable information. And before I get to that, uh, to my follow-up question, I did want to ask you something um, that you mentioned. I'd like you to go into a little more detail about that before I get to my questions. Um, you had mentioned that the 
family that initially enslaved Red Scott, uh, Peter Blow and his family, they actually freed him. Uh, talk a little bit about that because my research indicates that um, he, in fact, was freed, as you mentioned. I believe it was on May 26, 1857, a couple months after the notorious Dred Scott decision. So tell us how the family of the original so-called owner, Peter Blow, if they are enslaving people, why are they freeing him ultimately after that decision? Okay, that's a good question, and I also like the word enslaved. You know, sometimes it, all these variations do come out, but I absolutely prefer the enslaved person. Okay. Yes, yes, um, I'm so glad you mentioned it because a slave implies that it's a thing, a beast of burden. But these Africans who were in Africa, they were doctors, they were accountants, they were plumbers, they were carpenters, they were soldiers, they were human beings who happened to be in an enslaved state. So it wasn't as if they were slaves, they were human beings like you and I. So we make sure we go out of our way. When I say we, I mean the group that I'm a part of, ATAC, A-T-A-C. Right. Avenging the Ancestors Coalition to make it clear that these are human beings, these are Africans who simply were enslaved. But go ahead with the uh, Peter Blow story in terms of uh, why his family freed Dred Scott and Dred's family in uh, 1857. Uh, I believe it was May 26, 1857. Yes, we call that Freedom Day here. We just we just tag it Freedom Day for them because we've had programs on those days, and, and that is exactly the right date, May 26. Now, backing up to the Blow family, first of all, as I did mention, they were never mean or cruel to them. In fact, some of the research that's coming out about the family as they try to research his parentage, they show that the, uh, and the Blow family, by the way, can go back to at least the 1600s, I believe, even further back than that. And they have meticulous records. But one of the things that came out is the fact that they were very strict on how they would treat their slaves in that sense, that they would treat them with dignity. And they would list their names in the family Bible, and they did not treat them as beasts of burden. So to that end, they were more humane about it. Uh, being in an enslaved situation is not anything good. But if you're in that situation, they were not constantly under the threat of being whipped and, and killed or, you know, those kinds of issues, race and so forth. So the family was much more akin. Now, at the same time, the Blow family, Peter Blow and his wife Elizabeth, they had children. The earlier children seemed like they died fairly young to where they seemed to have a second set of children. It would appear that Dred lived somewhere between the older ones dying and the younger ones being born. So he got to know them. In fact, he even grew up. He said something in reference to them road boys that he grew up with. So there was the fact that his age and the younger children, that they weren't that far apart. They did. He worked again, like I said, the household. He was a little bit more around them. It was more of a, um, I don't want to say friendship. I, I mean, I wasn't there, but it was not a negative experience in terms of how he was treated. Well, so let, let, let me just say this, and of course I will defer to you as a blood relative of Dred Scott, but it seems to me, and I certainly would like to get your response, when it comes to slavery, 
it's all hell to me. Now, there might be some parts of hell that are hot and other parts that are even hotter, but it's all hell. I don't know how much credit I give to the Peter Blow family, and again, I will defer to you. I don't know how much credit I give to them for ultimately freeing Dredd because it reminds me of a line that Malcolm X said I'll never forget. He said that when a man stabs you in the back, you don't thank him, you don't commend him for pulling the knife out. You condemn him for stabbing you in the first place. And I kind of see that with the Peter Blow family. But, again, I'll defer to you as a blood relative of Red Scott. You certainly know better than I do. But what would be your response to that, that the Peter Blow family, they weren't like John Brown. They weren't initially abolitionists because they were enslaving people. What's your response to that? Okay, no, I love it. Listen to this. now, And I thank you for deferring to me because I'm going to tell you the rest of the story on that point. We're going to spend a few minutes on this, okay? Yeah. Um, first of all, I just told you the background of his growing up and so forth. Now, it was his father and his father's family and, and brothers and father who owned the place. The children he grew up with did not own him. They grew up with him, and they knew him for a long time. Now, fast forward, he sold the cause of debt by the owner, Peter, who then shortly thereafter died. Mm-hmm. Red has his travel to Dr. Emerson. He comes back to St. Louis. Dr. Emerson dies in 1843. So he asked the widow, after a while, if she could buy his freedom because mm-hmm. he had mm-hmm. saved up some money. Okay, you know that. Yes. He said no. All right. So then he went to the recourse of suing in the courts, which he found out, of course, at some point we don't know where, and, and a lot of people ask why didn't he do it before, why didn't he leave when he was in those mm-hmm. territories. We don't really know the answer to that, and I won't expound on those theories right now and stay on task here, but um, but he did know at this point that he could he could do and we believe that he was encouraged by Harriet and the pastor of their church, Reverend John Anderson, who was a free black abolitionist. Pastor Anderson was pastor of the Second African Church here in St. Louis, which is now Central Baptist Church. It's still ongoing. It's never ceased to be. And so with that background, with that influence, with that help and assistance, they proceeded forward. Now, when they pursued that, the Blow children, who again now, not, they they were never his owners except to say they could have been uh, those who would have inherited him, but mm-hmm. they did not. And had they, they may have set him free. But in this situation, they did not own him now, but they maintained a friendship. And throughout the ordeals of his trials, which, by the way, started on April 6, 1846, at the St. Louis Oak Courthouse, Went 11 years, there were five court proceedings. That's 11 years before the Supreme Court made their ruling. Mm-hmm. Throughout that time, now, and Michael, this is what I want you and others to hear. Throughout that time, the children, the Blow children, Taylor, Henry, Charlotte, okay, these in particular, Charlotte's husband, they helped Fred by finding attorneys, helping pay for some of the attorneys? I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because a lot of times people were asking me, well, Mike, you keep talking about Dred Scott as if he represented himself or hired his own lawyers. 
Where did this come from? So I really appreciate you filling in the blanks there. Yeah, that's not a problem at all, and I'm so happy to do it because I read so many things that people write. I mean, and I'm talking about historians and, and yeah. the acclimations. People will do, though, but, but again, you know, no one's fault. It's just that I love to set the record straight, and yeah. and I have people who are backing me up, too. I mean, even if I was wrong, somebody would be correcting me, but at this stage of the game, we are all in sync. I'm talking about people like Paul Finkelman. And yes. Dr. David Koenig and folks like that, okay? And we've it's all like, man, let's do this together. because you sound like such an expert. How can folks get a hold of you? I certainly want you to continue with your great explanation, but is there a website, um, Facebook, uh, email? How can folks contact you directly to get even more information from you? Okay, thank you. Yes, there is definitely a website. It is www.dt, as in Tom, H-E-D, Dread.foundation.org. And Dread is D-R-E-D-S-C-O-T-T, foundation.org. We also have the Dread Scott Heritage Foundation on Facebook. And we also are Twitter and LinkedIn. But I would stick with Facebook and the website for sure. And uh, you can contact me at either info at the Dread Cat Foundation, which there's a contact button, or Lynn S. And Lynn is L-Y-N-N-E. Okay. Well, I got to tell you, Lynn, I, um, at some point we'll probably take some questions from folks trying to get in, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to have to hog up the show because I got a million questions for you because you just have well, such great information. Can I just finish this, tie this up real quick at the end about how they helped him? Yes, definitely. Okay. I'll make it really quick, and I understand what you're saying because time right, does Take your time. When we're having fun. Okay, let's get to this point. We get to the Supreme Court. Justice Tony says uh, no, uh, no rights, blah, blah, blah. And so they go back, and they're now going to be slaves forever. Not so. As it turns out, Mrs. Emerson left long ago and went to marry uh, an abolitionist who she did not tell she owned these famous slaves. When he found out by reading the newspaper one morning in Boston, he was furious, and he, with Roswell Fields here in St. Louis, got that case to the federal level. Montgomery Blair, Calvin Casey, and Taylor Brown, there's that name again, mm-hmm. they worked out a plan whereby Mrs. Casey now, I mean Emerson Casey, Dr. Casey, and her daughter, who would have inherited them, they all signed a quick-claim deed, a quick-claim deed for property, turning Fred and his whole family over to Taylor Blow, with the express purpose of freeing him. This is not a sale as I'm selling and buying a slave. This is a document for freedom. It became a freedom document for them. And therefore, he immediately went and posted with his own money freedom bonds for all four, Red, Harriet, Eliza, and Lucy. And on May 26th, they got those freedom bonds. And that is how they were freed. The same family... The children of his owners who stayed with him the whole time of this process were the ones who literally were able to give him their freedom. They were not in a position to do it because they did not own him anymore. But once they were given that document, they immediately turned around and turned it into freedom bonds. 
For those of you who just tuned in, you are listening to the voice of Lynn M. Jackson, Dred Scott's great-great-granddaughter, founder and president of the Dred Scott Foundation. I got to tell you, to the listening audience, I have done extensive research regarding Dred Scott, primarily from a legal standpoint. I'm going to talk to Lynn about that. But I got to tell you, I have never learned so much from one single source than I have from Lynn Jackson. My only question to you, Lynn, is when are you going to be in the Philadelphia area so we can have you come here? Because you just explain everything so precisely, so clearly, and so completely. Do you have any business in the Philadelphia, the Pennsylvania region within the next year or so? You know what? The next year is going to be pretty exciting, I know. But I don't have plans, but I promise you that is one place I have never been that I so want to come to. And well, so we will, I mean, I'll talk to you off out. the air, and whatever arrangements we can make to have you will be a wonderful, wonderful thing. One of the other things I want to get into, I'm going to try to squeeze in as much as I can. Um, talk a little bit about um, the fact that at one point, Dred Scott actually won in court, because a lot of people don't realize that they thought that from the very beginning, he had been rejected or rebuffed in his legal actions. Obviously, in one of the first, I think you even mentioned, in 1846, after he tried to buy his freedom and was unsuccessful, he then decided to sue, and sometime around the mid-1847, he was in court, and his initial suit was dismissed. And I can say this, and I'm going to quickly get your response. As a lawyer, I always tell people that I am not a lawyer who happens to be a black man. Instead, I'm a black man who just happens to be a lawyer. And there's a difference there, because if I'm just thinking as a lawyer, I'm looking at this 1847 decision where the court dismissed Dred Scott's claim, and the reason they dismissed it, they said that he failed to present a proper witness to testify as to Dred Scott's status as a so-called slave. In other words, Dredd or Harry couldn't testify to it, but they needed somebody else, and because they didn't, the case was dismissed. But the interesting thing, this is what I'd like you to talk about, Linda, is in 1850, when the case went to a jury of six white men, they ruled in Dredd's favor. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, most definitely, and I love this part of the story, too. I want to clarify on the first trial when it was dismissed, it mm-hmm. was simply... Uh, really an attorney's error, it was dismissed on the grounds of hearsay, okay? And hearsay simply is the fact that you didn't go to the source. And instead of the woman who could have testified that they were, quote-unquote, owned by Irene Emerson, her husband was on the stand, and he said, my wife said, and when you do that, you remove yourself one party, and that's not acceptable in court, no matter who you are. But, and, and let me, and let me, since you're right about that, the, the thing that, that troubles me is that when it comes down to hearsay, hearsay is only bad because it, the evidence presented is not verifiable, it's not credible. Um, right. But to the extent that there was a witness who testified to verifiable or credible testimony, especially when you got two black folks here, um, Harriet and Dredd, and obviously, you know, they didn't get off the uh, boat uh, from Europe. It just seemed to me that the court was being hyper technical. You're absolutely right. And the technical standpoint, from a technical standpoint, it was hearsay. But the reason why hearsay is frowned upon in court is because it's not credible, it's not verifiable. But in this case, everything that was said by that husband was credible and was verifiable. 
Right. Well, I don't recall the exact text of everything else you said, but from my perspective and the way we approach it is you have to do the same thing for everybody. So even mm-hmm. though it might appear evidence that they were slaves by the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, they still had to do right by them. And if this man had declared something through hearsay that was wrong and had been accepted, then that would have been a misdeed for them. I got to tell you, Lynn, you are such a fascinating guest. I mean, we're not ending it now. We're going to keep going for another 30 minutes or so, or longer, I hope. But, again, you know, if we can't get you in Philadelphia anytime soon, we'd certainly like to have you back on the show. When I say the show, I'm talking about the show hosted by Leslie Gist of the Gist of Freedom, blog talk radio, which provides powerful information with powerful guests like Lynn M. Jackson, the great-great-granddaughter of Dred Scott. Now, before we go into some other issues, because I really love uh, talking about this whole legal stuff here, I certainly understand the point you made about the hearsay, and that's exactly why uh, the court determined that that information, that testimony, would be inadmissible. But And then we had mentioned, and I'd like you to expand upon these six white men who later ruled in Dred's favor. But the interesting thing about that is, and this is where we get to the I guess the inconsistency or the hypocrisy of the law. The point you made about hearsay is true. The judge technically did what he was supposed to do by initially dismissing the case. And when I say dismissing it, I just mean dismissing it without prejudice, which means Dred Scott could refile later and come back to court with the proper witness, which is exactly what he did. But my point is this. After Dred won in 1850, when the six white men ruled in his favor, the case then went to the Missouri Supreme Court. And in 1852, the Missouri Supreme Court contradicted 28 years of precedent. And you alluded to it earlier in speaking to Leslie, that old precedent of uh, once free, always free. Well, it seems to me if the court is so concerned about the hyper-technicality of hearsay and therefore saying Dred loses, it seems to me that it would have been supportive of the hyper-technicality of 28 years of precedent. I'd like you to talk about both of those, the issue of the six white jurors ruling his favor and then the Missouri Supreme Court two years later uh, reversing nearly 30 years of precedent by saying no longer does once free, always free apply. Okay. This is what I love. This is my story. Okay. Start with the jury of those who set him free. First of all, it was 12 white men, not six. Okay. Okay. Now, I'm glad you mentioned it because there was some discussion about that. The whole notion of 12 jurors in the United States is a relatively new phenomenon, but obviously that happened even before 1850 in Missouri. Yes, it was uh, 12 men. Okay. Their signatures are actually in the exhibit at the old courthouse that shows uh, those, the names of those 12. So uh, we, we can actually verify that. So yes, I, I'm hoping that it is true. Was it a unanimous uh, verdict that all 12 was just the majority? You know, I believe it was. And okay. I'm glad you asked me that. I'll verify that. I'm pretty sure that it was. And I mean, because one. nowadays, well, the way it works in criminal law, it must be unanimous. In civil law, it's a majority. So I'm not sure how they ruled in that case. Technically, it was a civil case and not a criminal case. So it didn't necessarily have to be all 12, but we'll certainly find out. First of all, I thank you for making it clear that it was, in fact, 12 and not 6. We'll just find that at some time in the future, was it a unanimous or just a simple majority? But go on, please. You're making a strong case here. Okay, very good. 
So we had uh, the 12 men on the jury because when they came back with those lights, uh, a witness said it was the slam dunk like it okay. should have been the first time, okay? And yes. honestly, I'm impressed by that. But like I said, and here's something people need to realize. St. Louis is still, if you will, I'm sorry to say, but it's still pretty much a divided uh, yes. city or yes. state. Okay? So it's always been that way, but that's another story. So the point is they got their freedom. But immediately Ms. Emerson appealed to that. And mm-hmm. when she appealed it, then it went to the, the next level. Now, her appeal, it was something that she insisted on having. It, it caused Fred and Harriet not to be able to keep their wages, and uh, they were actually under the jurisdiction of the sheriff. And so this was an issue. Now, that was in, um, I'm sorry, I'm losing track, 50, okay? Now, mm-hmm. here's a question that you asked. In 1852, the... Missouri Supreme Court took the case, all right, and made mm-hmm. a ruling. Here's part of what they said. They started out by saying, times are not now as they once were when these decisions were made, okay? Yes. Now, that's to the heart of your question, and that meant exactly this. Yes, we had this once free, always free, and it worked, and that was nice, but... We've got some political issues going on. Yes. And we're looking at how many people are maybe going to be getting their freedom under these rules. This is an economic issue. But here's another thing that they said further, quote. Mm-hmm. They said that Missouri is willing to accept the consequences of slavery within her borders. To me, that was almost like pronouncing a curse because that is saying, we don't really care what happens. We're not yes. releasing place, okay? And I oftentimes compare this to um, a, a biblical quote that says, uh, let him crucify it, let his blood be upon us, but crucify him. There's an interesting parallel there. However, it went on to say that anyone who felt that slaves should be let free was seditious. And that mm. meant that they were trying to overthrow the government. And I struggled with that for a while. I thought, what on earth? What was that he talking about? had potentially figured out that this is the way this country makes its living, so to speak. This is how our economics is founded. And if you are against slave labor, then you don't want to see us prosper. If you don't want to see us prosper, you're not for us. And so that is what they were saying. And then they said times are not as they once were when these decisions were made. That's how they overthrew 28 years president. And also, you have to think about what's an act of touch. And so, a lot of times, that plays in, but it really plays in at the U.S. Supreme Court level. But that's exactly what happened, and that's why. In fact, as I said before, those who just tuned in, first of all, if you just tuned in, you missed a great show and a great history lesson from Lynn M. Jackson, the great-great-granddaughter of the great Dred Scott, you're listening to the Gist of Freedom, normally hosted by Leslie Gist. And if you want more information from Lynn M. Jackson, you can reach her at www.thedredscottfoundation.org or find her on Facebook. A couple things I want to ask before we quickly run out of time. Now, in looking at the ultimate decision made by the Dred Scott Court on March 6th of 
1857. Essentially, the court said three things. One, it said that Dredd loses because he's a descendant of Africans and those people can never be citizens. And two, and this was really outrageous to me, that slaves were property and to take away property from the owners would violate their Fifth Amendment rights. And finally, the third aspect of the decision was that the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional. Um, all, of those three points made by the court, what do you find most egregious or most fascinating or most interesting? Well, most egregious is the fact that they would be deemed property and, and hiding under the Fifth Amendment to that yeah. end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Most egregious. And, you know, as we grew up, that that was one of the things we heard as children. We didn't understand it. You know, we said, well, they said we were probably, we were probably. So I can, you know, that was one of the early things that I wanted to study and understand. You know, did they literally say, sir, you are property, or did they say something <laughs> else? So when you go in and, you know, do this research, and so you try to temper it with sanity and reason if there is any. But ultimately, after all of that, the end result is that you have been deemed equal to property. Now, and absolutely right. And to the extent you're deemed equal to property, you're basically subhuman. A couple quick questions I have. Um, One is, in my research, and maybe you found something different, but I've checked high, low, hither and yon, there has never been, apart from obviously the constitutional amendments, there's never been a decision by the U.S. Supreme Court where it said directly and explicitly, we now overrule the Dred Scott decision of 1857. Have you come across anything indicating that the Supreme Court did directly and explicitly overrule the Dred Scott decision? Okay, that is a really, really good question, and I'm glad you asked it because obviously when it became known that I was doing the foundation, the anniversary was coming, you know, people were coming at me with, you know, we've got to overturn this, we've got to get this overturned, overturned. And I thought to myself, okay, yeah, for sure, but I'm thinking, how come that hasn't happened already? So I asked around, and, and again, I feel privileged, you know, that I think the Lord just put me in great place because I was in a law firm where I had ex-Supreme Court judges in the mm-hmm. law firm, I could walk down the hall and go into their offices and ask them questions and talk to attorneys and, uh, and and many other sources, like I said, many other sources. However, here's the answer to your question. Most, every single person I talk to, and I'm speaking of people who have the background, the knowledge, and the authority to know, said to me, and I will say this, some of them sometimes uh, kind of frowned and looked a little puzzled at the question. <laughs> at first, but then they would say, well, you know, honestly, the 14th Amendment actually mm-hmm. overturns the Dred Scott decision. And the more I ask, and this is over years now, not just a couple of times, but over years, and I'm sure I've asked at least 12 people, significant people, and to a person, they have all indicated that it's the 14th Amendment that overturns the Dred Scott decision. Now, people say, well, okay, so how is that? Because the real decision of the Dred Scott case was that, as an African, mm-hmm. you were not a citizen of the United States of America. Mm-hmm. And the 14th Amendment now says, from henceforth and forevermore, yes. all who are born in this country, be it H, C, and D, are citizens. And so you no longer can ever rule that way again. 
Now, so I'm glad you, you, you mentioned that, Lynn, because um, I've heard something like that before, and I appreciate you repeating uh, what folks have mentioned to you, lawyers and judges, I guess, and clerks and others. But the problem with that is that, as I had asked maybe five, ten minutes ago, the 1857 decision basically had three components. The 14th Amendment only deals with the first component, that Africans are not and can never be citizens. But what about the second part, indicating that slaves were property and to take property away from owners would uh, violate the Fifth Amendment rights of those owners? And on top of that, yeah, the 14th Amendment certainly did what it did, but that was legislative. And we got three branches of the United States government. The legislature did what it did with the amendment but the judicial branch never did anything. In fact, the judicial branch only came close to it in some cases called the slaughterhouse cases, dealing with butcher shops in Louisiana. And in dicta, a justice of the Supreme Court maybe wanted to simply touched on it and alluded indirectly to the fact that Dred Scott is overruled. But my point is, there's never been a court to explicitly overrule Dred Scott apart from what the legislative branch did with the 14th Amendment. So I'm just wondering why no Supreme Court, even if it was just symbolic, say we now uh, forevermore reverse the decision from 1857. That had never happened. No, that has not happened. And I will say this, that I continue to inquire about these matters, and I'm going to not try to answer why they have not, and I know that people would love to see them say that particular point. I don't yes. know if that's going to happen or not, honestly, because it's just like with the hearsay issue. It's like there, there are rules and orders and rule of law and rule of order. And so to go outside of any of that would be extraordinary. I do not know. It would take someone extraordinary to say, I want to do that. But Great that's point. Great that, point. That Let me get to some other issues. I want to quickly talk about your take on uh, the court's chief justice at the time, Roger Taney. Uh, tell me what you think about what you've read about what he wrote in particular, where he described black people as, quote, of an inferior order and stated that those people, quote, altogether are unfit to associate with the white race, either in social or political relations. Um, comment on either those statements or anything else you got from Roger Taney. Okay, excellent. Let's say this. Um Go back a minute and just remember the one line I, I gave you out of the Missouri Supreme Court, which said, times are not now as they once were. Well, I'm going to give you my opinion, okay, that I believe that based on the history of Roger D. Tony, which, by the way, was a very reputable and respected and well thought of. He had made um, interesting decisions. No one was arguing with any of that. In other words, had he not had the Dred Scott decision, he might have gone down in history as one of the best justices that we had. That was prior to Dred Scott. Now, in the past, it's been reported that he actually defended slaves in court and won cases for them. So we're talking about someone whose background and whose past up to this point. If I draw a line in the sand at 1857, the person who's making this decision and saying these things doesn't sound like the person who was prior to 1857 in, for the most part. Now, my, my thought about that is that simply this. There's a lot of politics going on, and the fact that the uh, election where Buchanan became president 
there was no tampering, okay, in the sense that he found out what the decision was going to be. Who knows, but that he also influenced that decision. And they thought that when they made the decision, whichever way it went, this was going to settle the slave question. Well, they settled it in their favor for the country. Was he unduly influenced? Had he become more hardened? I don't know, but I do know that it's very inconsistent with his prior reputation. However, being that he's the Supreme Court Justice, and seeing that the new administration coming in is looking for something in particular, this decision was made. Now, to the point that you said that these beings were so far inferior that they could not associate with the rest of society, that's baloney. When we, show, uh, when we say that, we usually show a picture of a black slave woman holding a white slave child in her lap. Now, yes. you can't be any more hypocritical than that, okay? <laughs> that you can take care of my children and raise them. They call you mama or whatever, but, yep. but no. So, you know, we all know that that's ridiculous. However, my point that I'm making is I do believe it was way more political than it was personal. Now, when you say way more political and personal, does that also mean way more political than racial? Um, you know what? I, I don't know whether to say yes or no to that question, honestly, because in, if you look at his past record, and I don't have a, a great detail on it, but one case, and, and I have to say I'm looking to verify this. I, I have this in my files, but I have not had a chance to go back and, and find it, that he supposedly defended a slave against a charge of rape. Now, that doesn't mean that as a lawyer, maybe he just won the money, it was just a case. I don't know. I'm trying to figure these things out because I'll be honest with you, Michael, I, I'm not going to take a, you know, Left, uh, far left, far right position. I'm looking for the truth, and the truth is always somewhere in the middle. Well, so and, and again, I said at the very here. beginning of the show that I would defer to you, um, but mm-hmm. I see Taney as the devil incarnate. That if Satan could put on a black robe and play the role of a chief justice of the Supreme Court, it would be in the person of Roger Taney. For me, it's not an issue of left or right. Um, but simply an issue of black versus white. I mean, Roger Taney could see black people as human beings, as sentient creatures. So it seems to me that he would have done the right thing and certainly would have said the right thing. But let me turn it over to you because I want you to do most of the talking. I just want to ask you a couple quick questions. I believe we only have about maybe 12 minutes left. Uh, But apart from the fact that I see Roger Taney uh, as the devil incarnate, let's talk about some of the things that he might have factored into his decision. His decision was made in 1857. Prior to that was the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 and 1850. To what extent did those Fugitive Slave Acts affect the outcome or even the rationale of the Dred Scott decision? Fugitive Slave Act, okay. I'm sorry, hold on. Yes, forgive me. I'm on my cell phone. I want to be sure we're good. Not a problem. Not a problem. Take your time. Take your time. And while you're doing that, those who just tuned in, you're listening to Lynn M. Jackson, believe it or not, the great-great-granddaughter, and quite knowledgeable with that, of Dred Scott. This is the 
Gist of Freedom, normally hosted by Leslie Gist. For more information about our guest tonight, Lynn Jackson, log on to www.thedreadscottfoundation.org or the Dred Scott Hurt at the Dred Scott Heritage Foundation on Facebook. Also, U.S. Truly Attorney Michael Cord is interviewing Lynn M. Jackson, and he's trying to persuade her to come to Philadelphia sometime soon so she can share this wealth of information with folks here in the city of brotherly love. Um, before we get to the point, uh, Lynn, where I have to cut things off, um, please tell us what you think is most imp- what's the most important legacy of the Dred Scott decision? Because the average person would simply say, Oh, Dred Scott, the black man has no rights that no white man is bound to respect. Yeah, most people say that. That's a superficial understanding of the case. But if you had to talk for a couple of minutes about the legacy of Dred Scott, what does it mean? What did it mean? And what does it mean? What would be your response? I would say this, Michael, that here we have a man and his wife, because she filed her own petition as well. Their cases were merged together. But they stood together as one. And the new statute that's going to come up in St. Louis is going to show them locked together in purpose and in intent. Because they sacrificed for 11 years, first and foremost, to preserve their family. Their legacy is about family and freedom. Grant and Harry had two daughters, and they did not want to see them sold off into who knows what, who knows where. And so much so that they continued to say, yes, let's go to the next level. Let's take this as far as we can. It was dangerous. It was considered rebellious and seditious, on, if you will, I'll use that word again, for them to, to file against an owner. They could have been sold, separated, um, beat, killed. You know, they literally sometimes would put people in jail. They lost more freedom by being put in jail for their safety than they had when they were out on the street as, as an enslaved person. So they were courageous and tenacious. They pursued this over 11 years. They hid their daughters away for one, maybe two years in a place that to this day we don't know where. And they did all that to preserve first their family. They knew at a certain point when we went to federal court that this was going to become bigger than them, and yet they still pursued it. They, they paid a high price during their lives, and their daughters suffered somewhat after that. In fact, the youngest daughter, she was marred for her whole life because of this, and she lived to be 99. Their legacy is about family and freedom and courage to do what's right, and so do their convictions. Once again, those of you who just tuned in, we have Lynn M. Jackson, the great-great-granddaughter of Dred Scott, providing powerful information. She's the founder and president of the Dred Scott Foundation. For more information, www.thedredscottfoundation.org. Um, Lynn, I did, and you did as well, touch briefly on the Fugitive Slave Act, but if we can go into a little more detail about it, because we have a Fugitive Slave Act of uh, 1793, we got a Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, and as I pointed out before, we have this Dred Scott decision of 1857. Um, Couldn't there have been an argument that the hands of the Supreme Court in 1857 were tied because of the Fugitive Slave Act? I mean, couldn't an argument be made that if Dred Scott was, quote-unquote, a slave and left a free territory and returned to a slave territory, that he would forever be enslaved? How did those two Fugitive Slave Acts, uh, if at all, affect the outcome of the decision? 
Well, you know, I think it's just part of that political machine that was trying to teach slavery, uh, you know, as a foundational foundation stone of the country. To say that here's here's the bad thing about the 1850 Act. Okay, a slave could escape from the South and go to the North and be pursued and brought back. But not only that, if you lived in the North and if you were always free and even born free, you could be tagged as a runaway slave and brought mm. back to the South. So yeah. there was some very heinous things about that. That was wicked and evil. And, of course, there was no one to come to their defense. So the fact that this became the law in 1850, and in 1852, when Missouri said times are not as they once were, you can see the climate change. You can see the clouds coming. You see the darkness falling. And this, yes, most definitely played into that whole machine that led up to 1857, which is why I said earlier that Who's to say that maybe this isn't exactly what he would have done had he not had some other influences that said, you know, this is the way it's got to be. I really, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not trying to defend him, of course. I think it was wicked and evil as well. But within my studies, I'm trying to be more broad about what was really going on. I'm not trying to, you know, like bump somebody off and stick on that picking on anybody. I'm, I'm looking for the truth. And the truth is that there was a system that needed to be preserved at any cost. And that was part of it at 1850 and 1852 and 1857 was the penultimate. And we have not said this yet, Michael, but for those of your listeners who don't know, this was one of the very major catalysts that brought on the Civil War. And, of course, because of that, we did end up with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Also, it was the Dred Scott decision that pretty much nailed Abraham Lincoln's decision to, to further pursue his political career when he had previously thought maybe to get out of politics. There were a few things that happened right before the decision that also made him think, I should do this, but his presidency might be a direct result of the Dreadstock decision, being that it was the most tenuous and infamous decision that the court has ruled in up until most recent times. You know, you just uh, mentioned Abe Lincoln. I don't want to get sidetracked, but in your research and connection with Dred Scott, and ultimately, as you pointed out, uh, it did lead to the Civil War. Um, just briefly, what's your take on Abe Lincoln? Because my take shows Abe Lincoln as a shrewd politician who was a racist. And when I say a racist, racist, I don't necessarily mean somebody who would enslave black people, but Abe Lincoln's on the record as saying that even if they get their freedom, black folks should never be permitted to vote, should never be permitted to hold office, should never be permitted to serve as jurors. What's your response, if any, to that? Okay, um, I do not see him, I would not have said he was a racist, personally, and I think he, he kind of backed off of that, too. But I do agree with you that he was true because one of the things that he gets criticized for is the Emancipation Proclamation wherein it did not free anybody in particular. Yes. But I believe that that was a war strategy to change the uh, outcome and give them an advantage by allowing the slaves from the South to go to the North and become part of the fighting force when, if they would win then they could end slavery. So his personal opinion about voting and things like that, you know, there are a lot of Abe Lincoln quotes, and people need to research them and weigh them for what they are. Um, 
I don't know to say that, you know, maybe he found them to be so uneducated that maybe he would be fine in general that they would understand how to do this. But I do not believe that he was a racist. No, I don't. Okay. I got to tell you, uh, Lynn, you are the most, quote-unquote, reasonable descendant of a known enslaved African that I've ever encountered, and, and that's that's laudable because most people would think, hey, we're going to have the great-great-granddaughter of Dred Scott. She's going to be yelling. She's going to be screaming. She's going to be going off. <laughs> You're presenting a very reasoned approach. And let me ask you about that because here you are, the great-great-granddaughter of a man who was bought, of a man who was sold, of a man who was rented out like a motorcycle might be rented out. Why aren't you? uncontrollably enraged. Well, you know what? My personal thing... 90 seconds. I don't think... I think I'm just hitting my phone. I hope you're not hearing it. I'm sorry if you are. You're good. You're um, good. But, okay, thank you. I have to know cell phone. But listen, um, I personally do not believe that emotion is the way to resolve conflict or controversy. And so I believe that she's been given mind which is to think and heart which to love. Sometimes it's hard to love, and we should not love ugly and wicked. But we should try to think through and understand. And I personally do not have any malice um, towards people as individuals, but I hate I hate what people do. I hate that behavior. I hate wicked and evil things. And so I will continue to speak out against that. And I will also try reasonable and fair because, you know, even as you, as an attorney, you know that if a person is innocent but everything looks like he's guilty, what hope does he have? And we need to give each other hope because part of our foundation is about education, commemoration, and reconciliation. I don't have the final formula for reconciliation, but I do know it's not unbridled emotion. And I'm thankful that, you know, we have the opportunity to come together and reason these things out. And I really appreciate your questions tonight. They were actually very good. Thank you. And I thank you for your powerful information. It was very, very impressive. we got about maybe seven to eight minutes left, and I certainly want you to do all the talking. So let me just throw out another question I want to ask. In terms of we talked about the three different aspects of the Dred Scott decision, uh, Africans are not citizens, uh, the Fifth Amendment uh, rights of uh, so-called slave owners being violated, and we just touched briefly on the Missouri Compromise. And the Missouri Compromise was an essential component of, of what led up to the Dred Scott decision. Tell us what that meant in your research. What did you find the Missouri Compromise to be and to mean, and how influential was it in the outcome of the Dred Scott decision? Okay, yeah, very good question again. Missouri Compromise... And, and I alluded to earlier how Missouri is somewhat of a divided state even today. And it's kind of ironic that Missouri would be the compromised state. What happened was the slavery was obviously, you know, some people wanted it, some people didn't. So they came to a compromise where they would say, at this point, these, the next state that comes in will be a slave state, the one after that would be a free state, the one after that would be slavery, and so on. And so the Missouri Compromise 
allowed everybody to get a little bit of what they wanted as states were joined into the union. You have to keep in mind that we had uh, states up into about where Missouri was when it came in, and all the land to the west was called territories. And so they knew in time those territories would become states in the Missouri Compromise was a way widely as well, I'm sorry, whereby they could balance out states that were free and states that were slave. So when we get to 1857, and I call them activist judges because the Missouri Compromise had nothing to do with the question of freedom for Dred Scott and his family. Absolutely nothing. They just took it upon themselves to say, oh, and by the way, we don't think Congress had a right to institute the Missouri Compromise because, quote-unquote, or in parentheses, this doesn't go along with our new program here. So we're just going to throw that out and say it was unconstitutional. And that left the door open for all of the territories west of Missouri to become slave states. You have what we used to call the Mason-Dixon line where slavery was below, and we call that the South, and free states of freedom was above. All of these things were being challenged by the Dred Scott decision. So not only did he inflame the nation by denigrating the personhood of Africans who were enslaved, but they also challenged the Constitution and the right of Congress to pass laws and overruled the laws they had passed. This was putting, like, you know, uh, how you do it, putting oil on the fire. I mean, it just, it just made it rage out of control. So that is how the compromise influence just got to keep in caused to be even more drastically than it had been. In the last few minutes, uh, and by the way, those of you just tuned in, you missed a great show. Um, you've, and if you were listening, you heard the voice of Lynn M. Jackson, the great-great-granddaughter of the great Dred Scott. She's also the founding president of the Dred Scott Foundation. You can get more information about her and the foundation at www.thedredscottfoundation.org. Uh, if you want to reach me, I'd be happy to speak to you about this or anything else. My name is Michael Cord, C-O-A-R-D. I can be reached at www.avengingtheancestors.com. Um, Lynn, a few quick questions before we get out of here. I wanted to talk to you about the Northwest Territory, but I want to hold off on that for a second. Um, is it true that at the time they were married, that Dredd was 40 years old and Harriet Robinson was 17? Well, we don't know their exact ages, but he was considerably older than her. Yes, he was. And it's likely that he could have been about 17 and he would have been close to 40. We're talking 1836, mm -hmm. and since we don't know exactly when he was born, it could have been 1799 or as late as 10. Therefore, um, we're gonna, I'm going to say he was at least 12 years. I'm going to go to the lowest end. He was years older than her, and after that, um, he could have been almost uh, closer to 20, yes. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned what you did about not knowing the exact age. And there's obviously a reason that we don't know their exact age, not like they had birth certificates like white folks. Talk a little bit about that, um, how and why you don't know, even as the descendants, you don't know the exact birth date. Well, if you alluded to it for the most part, even though, uh, as I said, the Blow family did write down the names of their slaves in the family Bible, 
they did not put their birth dates down, unfortunately. Now, that's not to say that some families have not, because I know that some have, but it just wasn't something that was important to them because it, it just it was not. You know, they were not of their family. They were they were their enslaved persons or property as well. You know, I'm not so sure that people really consider them property uh, so far back and still maybe the just that case, but, you know, they, it just didn't matter to them. It didn't matter. They were not considered on their social level, so it, it didn't have to be. And sadly, um, we do know the years of their daughter's birth because we have records that one was born on a uh, riverboat in three territories, a riverboat gypsy. And uh, technically, she could have been three, but she, she belonged to her parents. Who now, Mike, can I say something about our statue in St. Louis? As a matter of fact, whatever you'd like to talk about, go ahead. The time is yours. Okay, because I only have a couple of minutes myself. I'm going to have to get off air. Okay. But we are creating a statue of this parent and it is the very first one that will ever have been erected of them anywhere that I've been able to find in the world since I started doing this, which has been about uh, 16 years. So it will be in St. Louis. Uh, the sculptor is Harry Weber. He is vocal, but he won a national competition, hands down, it was a blind competition. And uh, he did a beautiful job. And if you do go to our website, you can see the maquette of our statue. And honestly, we would love to see it all paid off before we install it. If you can do that, so I would love to ask your listeners to think about maybe making a best gift contribution to us to help us pay for this debt because it is long overdue and it is going to be quite a blessing to our city and to our country. And uh, and I'm very proud of it and, and looking forward to having that dedication in the very near future. Now, do you have any idea at this point of the total cost of that statue? Of course. <laughs> the co- total cost of the statue, which is going to be um, six to nine feet. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, yeah. we missed that. How much was that? I'm sorry. I said the total cost of the statue is 250000 That's a nine-foot statue of three total is nine feet tall. It'll be right outside the old courthouse in where they filed their first decision. Now, obviously, your website, folks can get more information, www.thedreadscottfoundation.org, but sadly, I run across a number of folks that don't have access to the Internet. Is there a phone number folks can call if they're interested in making a financial contribution? Definitely. I'll give you my phone number, and I will give you the address. If they want to send a donation, we appreciate that, and send it to the Dead Scott Heritage Foundation, P.O. Box 2009, like 2009. And that was in Florence, F as in Frank, L-O-R, another R, I S A N T That is our PO box. It's on the website as well. And then uh, my number where you, I can be reached three one four five two five six one three. And the administrative number is nine one zero nine six four eight seven nine zero. 
I got to tell you, I've done several of these shows for Leslie Gist of the Gist of Freedom, and no disrespect to any other guest I've had, but you have been the best. I mean, you have been informative. You have been enlightening. You've been conversant. You are the best type of guest. You're the prototype of guest. Uh, for a host, you just make my job and our job so easy. So we want to thank you for that. Whenever you get a chance, if you can go to my organization's website at www.avengingtheancestors.com, let me know what you think about it because we're not using avenging as in revenge. We use avenge in the way that it's defined, which means to make whole, to make right, to do what needs to be done. So I got to tell you, I'm just so impressed that we've had you on. I'd like you to check out that website. And finally, in the last minute or so, because we both got to run, you got work to do, I got to be in court early tomorrow. In the last two or three minutes, if you can just sum up the last hour that we've had, uh, for those who might have tuned in late, um, I'll turn it over to you for the closing statement, um, the closing argument in this presentation this evening. One minute, two minutes, whatever you like to wrap this up this evening because we know you have to run. Okay, thank you. Well, again, I'd like to thank you for allowing me to present the history. And this has been more of a legal conversation. That's great. So, no, I'm just the story of the Scott, his wife, um, Harriet Scott. This is the law that we're all together. Well, I'm just saying, by the Confederate. What did you just say, law? Oh, undoing in 1850. After having been turned down by their... He took the legal means because Ben Scott saw himself as a man, all right, a man, and he did what other men were able to do. They filed for his freedom. He was turned down, and he got mad and five trials for the U.S. Supreme Court today in the infamous Ben Scott decision of 18. got to do with the legal legalities of the case. I'm sorry, black men had no rights that white men were bound to protect. And that due to his ancestry, which was African, he neither was a citizen nor neither could his descendants ever be citizens. And therefore, he was thrown out of court because he didn't have grounds to be in court. And they further went and said that the Norfolk Ordinance, which had been invoked for almost 40 years, was no longer appropriate, allowing slaves to post That meant that... Um, any, any and every slave, even those who had been free, even those who considered themselves citizens were now non-persons. Indeed, they they were deemed as property. This inflamed the nation, and um, the Civil War was an outcome of that. Having lost the South, we decided that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were the way to go to rectify some parts of this. But as we all know, today we still have lots of issues to deal with. And uh, the Good Sunny Earth Foundation was founded to commemorate that 150th anniversary and to educate, which actually by speaking all over the country, by writing, by doing interviews, uh, by whatever means you can uh, to educate, and then the hope and goal that one day we'll be united in heart, spirit, and reconciliation is a goal. Amen. You have been listening to the, and I mean the expert on the history of Dred Scott, the great-great-granddaughter of Dred Scott, Lynn M. Jackson. 
For more information, log on to www.thedreadscottfoundation.org for more information about what we discussed tonight, as well as offering a financial contribution to the nearly 10-foot-tall statue of Dredd and his wife. Go to that website or call 314-532-5613. You've been listening to blog talk radio show specifically the gist of freedom normally hosted by leslie gist and i got to tell you lynn i really appreciate your information i really appreciate your passion i will be in touch with you if we can't bring you to philly i'm going to try to steal you away from leslie and have you on my radio show because you've been that informative and that enlightening thank you very 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 much okay my glad Thank you, and thank you, Leslie. God bless, and good night. All right. And for those of you who are still with us, the party continues Tuesday night, this coming Tuesday, April 24, when we will have Gloria Brown Marsh, who is that? She's the constitutional law professor, former civil rights attorney, author, playwright. When you talk about somebody who has the inside info on Obamacare, inside info on Trayvon Martin, and by the way, when I say Obamacare, I'm not saying it disparagingly like the Republicans do, like the conservatives do. I'm talking about somebody who's taking the step in the right direction to provide health care, affordable health care to every single American. You want to hear more about Obamacare? You want to hear about what's going on with Trayvon Martin? You want to hear from a constitutional law professor, a former civil rights attorney, an author, a playwright, all wrapped up in one? That's Gloria Brown Marsh. This coming Tuesday, April 24, 8 p.m. here on this blog talk radio show hosted normally by Leslie Gist of The Gist of Freedom. We'll see you and talk to you on Tuesday. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. Thank you for using Blog Talk Radio. Goodbye.